Hi, and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations about issues emanating from psychiatry that impact society, as well as discuss societal issues that have potential implications for mental health and emotional well-being. My guests include thought leaders from both within the discipline of psychiatry and beyond. Beyond Madness is brought to you in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time. Employee wellness is a key component of organizational effectiveness. Corporations and employers generally are acutely aware of this with employee health and wellness programs and related support staff whose function is to assist as required, being part and parcel of many organizations, both in the private and the state sector. Where ill health and absenteeism or impaired functioning is a consequence of psychiatric illness, the system is faced with challenges that require specific awareness and understanding. For today's episode, Psychiatry in the Workplace, I am joined by Professor Stoffel Hrobler, Christoffel Hrobler, and Nika Hrobler. Now, Stoffel is a psychiatrist and head of the clinical unit at Elizabeth Duncan Hospital in Quebec. He's an associate professor at Walter Sisulu University and a research associate at Nelson Mandela University and, more recently, an extraordinary professor at the University of Pretoria. Nika is an occupational therapist and the National Disability Manager at Siaya Skills Institute. It's great to have an important member of the MDT as a guest on today's episode, Nika. And so to you and Stoffel, welcome, and thanks for making the time to join us for today's conversation which emanates from an article that you co-authored for South African Psychiatry back in 2019, which seems like a long time ago with everything that has taken place both locally and globally since then. But I'm sure that there are some fundamental realities that remain unchanged. Now, your article was entitled Reasonable Accommodation in the Workplace, What Every Psychiatrist Should Know. And I'm hoping that by the end of today's conversation, we're going to extend that to what everyone will know. So, Nika, I'm going to quickly touch base with you because I, I I was saying to you before we started recording that I can't recall how many occupational therapists we've had on the program or the, the podcast. And could you briefly tell us what an occupational therapist is just for our listeners who may not be completely au fait with all of the disciplines within the health professions? Yes, of course. So basically what an occupational therapist is a light healthcare professional. Right. And we promote health and well-being um, through occupation. So it can be from a child um, to an older person, but occupation in the sense of for a child would be play, for someone um, in the workforce it would be work, and for someone older it would be more focused on the leisure side of things. But basically to help people participate in life um, to their full ability despite having difficulties. Right. And I must say, for me as a psychiatrist, I often find the occupational therapy report, and we'll get into what that might constitute uh, as we move into the conversation, always very helpful, very practical, and usually very focused in terms of, okay, this is what the person can do, and so this is where you need to position them in terms of whatever the expectations might be of their ability to function. And I think it's always very helpful and, and very practical. And we're going to see in an example that I'm going to give later on where actually that is so important. So I want to start out with three important terms that I, I think provide a, a, a critical context to this conversation. Remembering that these terms pertain both to physical 
and mental functioning. And the terms are impairment, disability, and incapacity. So I'm going to start with, with, with you, Stoffel, and obviously, Nika, you jump in as you feel you would like to. Uh, Stoffel, starting out with impairment, because I think it's important because often I think a lot of terms are used interchangeably, yeah. but they've actually got very specific meaning and very specific implications. So I think it's important to be clear. What are we talking about when we talk about, in this instance, impairment? Yeah. Impairment. Uh, thank you, Christopher, and thank you for, for the invitation. Um, impairment is what we as a psychiatrist, uh, and this is what the insurance industry expects us to do, is when we see a patient uh, that, for example, has been struggling at work and now cannot continue to work, uh, we do an impairment assessment. Right. And uh, we can actually, um, in a sense, quantified, we use the term rate, we can rate impairment, okay. and we use the American Medical Association guidelines, and they define it basically as a loss of function. Um, and um, so, so there's something that you can measure there um, as to how much have they lost in terms of occupational functioning, and how much have they lost in terms of social functioning. Right. And that gives you then an impairment at what level they are functioning at the present moment. So it's almost like a rating scale. In a sense, I mean, you're rating functionality and you're giving and, and you're putting a percentage to it. But I think that, you know, in, in, in putting a number or a percentage, how does that translate into the actual utility of that in terms of practically what does that mean? And so I think that's often one of the issues that we might be able to, between us, have an understanding, okay, this person is severely dysfunctional or mildly dysfunctional. Then you get to the employer who says, okay, so what does that mean? And so I'm going to just flip it straight away to, to, to Nika because I think for me, that's where OT is very important because now you start to, to, to actually give us a sense of, okay, so what does it mean? Right, um, Christopher. So for the occupational therapist, I think our training makes us very practical. Um, and in terms of work, we will have a look at the job demand. So what is it that the employer or the job description um, expects of the person right. to be able to do? Then we would look at what is the person still able to do and compare those two. And then we can sort of give practical advice um, to the employers. So I think um, your, our super um, power is to turn um, difficult concepts into practical advice for and both I, the employer and the employer. And I think that's very important because one of the issues, and I'm sort of jumping ahead now, but I think it's, it's germane in terms of where we are. One of the issues is expectations. You know, of the employee from the employer and the employee themselves in terms of, so what would be reasonably expected of me at this point of my recovery or, 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 or illness journey? So I think that is very important. So the next term is disability. And, and for me, disability seems to have a more legal connotation if we look at, you know, the Employment Equity Act. In South Africa, certainly. So, so Stoffel, your your comments on 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 the meaning of disability. So, I'm going to leave the the uh, the specific definition to Nika because yes. it's a lot better than I am at that. But disability is, I think, the moment that the person is unable to continue working due to a mental health disorder, right. and um, 
we, we, we tend to think in all or nothing terms, um, or we used to, and I think right. we shouldn't be thinking in all or nothing terms anymore. We should be thinking, is this temporary or is this permanent? Um, and we should be thinking a lot more about uh, this might be temporary with the right intervention. Um, uh, this person uh, hopefully will be able to return to work and go back to work. So disability doesn't necessarily need to be uh, permanent. Well, you see, I think that, that, that the issue for me is that Within the context of the term disability, some ability is retained. So we're not making an absolute statement. And I think there's often confusion in use of terms, for example, people with disability versus a disabled person. And I think for me, what was interesting is if I looked at the Employment Equity Act, as you had outlined it in, in, in the article, there were kind of three specific um, criteria, so to speak, which looked at whether it's long-term or recurring, obviously physical or mental. But I think what was important was that it substantially limits prospects of entry into or advancement in a particular career. So I think there are uh, specific aspects which define, without giving it a definition, there are elements that define, and it seems to me that the substantially limited, that criterion must apply for it to be disability in the legal sense within the context of employment equity. So I don't want to get too technical, but I think it's important because from an employer-employee perspective and, and from a funding perspective, these things actually matter. Stoffel? It's, it's, it's very important. And, and, and I know that uh, for, for me, Nika is the, the expert here, and I'm going to say yes. why. Well, the OTs are the experts because um, the um, – it starts off with long-term or recurring. Okay, that's the diagnosis. Right. Uh, or, or that's the prognosis. That's right. the prognosis, long-term or recurring. So um, mental health care disorder or mental health disorders usually are tend to be chronic and long-term. Right. So that's prognosis, physical or mental impairment, that's diagnosis. So that we, we can do as doctors. Right. Um, but who decides what is substantially limiting? That's where it becomes complicated, and that's where – um I feel that, that the OTs are best place, and, and that's their scope of practice, to actually say whether this substantially limits their employment. So, Nika, you've been put on the spot now. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly have. Um, this conversation started between Sofal and I, I think, six years ago already, because I was looking at the definition um, according to the Employment Equity Act, and, and I wanted to know which healthcare professional should say what, because... Yes. Otherwise, it becomes so muddled. And uh, substantial limitation, you can only measure once you, you know what you're measuring against, and that's the job mm. for this person. Yes. And then yeah. to be able to measure again, you've got to know what this person can do and see what the gap is. Right. And uh, the, the easiest thing for me that crystallized out of this was if this person needs an accommodation, a reasonable accommodation, to be able to perform these functions, then they are substantially limited. So that makes it easy. Right, because that term, reasonable accommodation in itself, can create problems. I've seen a recent example where a psychiatrist mentioned, you know, that there should be reasonable accommodation. And between the employer and the employee and the lack of actually explaining what that actually means, there was absolute confusion. And it has created, you know, difficulties because what does reasonable accommodation mean? And I think it's a term which is obviously part of the title of your article. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to really look more fully at reasonable accommodation because, you know, 
one has to put oneself in the shoes of the employer. So you get a certificate that says, please give this employee reasonable accommodation. And so as a psychiatrist, you know, you've kind of advocated for your patient. You're suggesting that there's a problem and that the employer should be sensitive to that. The employer now gets this certificate and it says, please provide reasonable accommodation and boom, that's it. And now the employer has to say, well, geez, what do I think is reasonable? And I think one has to be very careful because that whole term reasonable yeah. and even accommodation can be highly subjective. And so we're needing to convert these terms into something which is more objective and is clearly understood in terms of expectations. Because I find that where the expectations are different and not met, then we set the scene for conflict. And then we have problems between employer and employee and, of course, health professionals because now everybody is kind of arguing about what it is and what it isn't. And for me, that's that's the issue. It's, it's, it's about trying to be as precise as possible and as clear as, as possible. So I, I'm going to get back to the issue of reasonable accommodation. But I want to now move into incapacity because now, you know, and I mean, as we're moving through from impairment to disability to incapacity, it almost sounds like, you know, you're splitting hairs. But actually, um, I think incapacity in itself has has its own meaning. Stoffel? Absolutely. And, and th- th- that's, again, I, I, I suppose this is where, where the OTs uh, can play such a, an important role. Because as um, psychiatrists and as doctors, we can take a, 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 a patient history and we can ask the, the person uh, what their job is and what they are doing when they go to work every day. But um, what are their core functions? And we frequently get uh, in, in the reports, yes. we get the uh, job descriptions. And that, but I, I, that's not my field of expertise. That helps no. me nothing. No. Um, so I don't understand the, the, the patient's world in that regard. And that's where I think that the, the OT must come in and say, okay, well, there are certain things that needs to happen for 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 us to decide whether this person is able to um, to, to fulfil the core functions of of their job. So, I mean, this the issue of incapacity, as I've understood it, is basically you're unable to carry out functions. So you you've got incapacity, and I think one has to differentiate unable to versus unwilling to, because I think one of the concerns that that you raised was that you know it could be construed as misconduct. And then they move down a disciplinary, and and sometimes one sees that, that you know the 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 patient or the or the employee gets to you as a consequence of disciplinary yes. issues, when in actual fact all that's happened is the the basis for their incapacity or their inability has been construed or has been understood as as unwillingness, and then it's become an issue between the employer and the employee getting into disciplinary. So once again, I mean, we, we come back to, 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 to occupational therapy, Yonika. So your, your comments. So when it comes to incapacity, um, the important thing, that the easiest thing between disability and incapacity for me is if we tried all the reasonable accommodations or all the adjustments that is possible for the person to fulfill the essential functions of the job, Right. And they still can't do it, not because they're not willing, but they really can't. If the answer then is no, they can't do it, then you can say they're incapacitated. Right. But the employer is still not um, uh, quite off the hook. They have to try alternative positions within yes. the company. Right. 
um, to see if they can um, accommodate the person. And this is often the difficulty, but I think that what's important is that if with reasonable accommodation, you are not able to perform your key roles. So already there, one is saying, okay, here's this job description. And I've seen, as you say, Stoffel, I've seen some of these job descriptions and they can occupy two or three pages. And you're thinking, yeah, okay, yeah. so which elements of these are essential? Which elements of these are in accordance with the current level of functioning as measured by an occupational therapist? How do we extract those? Let's constitute those as where we recommence the journey back to reintegration into the workplace as recovery takes place. But it's a devil of a job because at the end of the day, you're sitting as a mental health professional and who are you to decide what is a core or a key element of a job? I mean, surely that's the function of the employer to say, well, you know, what is the bare minimum that is required um, that must be undertaken? These are the things we can maybe move on to others or we can delay reintroducing. But at the end of the day, you know, one has to then surely have a, a working relationship with line manager to kind of have a discussion. And I don't think that that necessarily ever takes place, to be honest with you, because very often what I've seen is that the line manager is working through human resources and they've kind of understood that mm, this is a bit of a tricky situation. So I'm going to bring in human resources. And then the line manager almost extracts themselves from the mm. issue yeah. and they leave well. it. And then it kind of gets deferred to now it must go to wellness and so suddenly there's a whole bunch of other people getting involved when in reality what I think logically for me makes sense is I need to know as a health professional, if I look at this job description, you're the line manager, what is essential? And then we say, right, how do we match capacity with what is essential? And I don't know if I'm speaking idealistically here, but for me it just makes logical sense because I'm seeing that – the line managers, and I can understand, they, they've got a sensitivity in terms of their employee, but they start to withdraw from the situation. And the employee then often feels that they've been abandoned and that nobody's listening to them. And this then creates a whole situation of, 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 of hostility. So, Nika, your thoughts on, on, on what I'm saying in, in terms of the interaction between a line manager and an occupational therapist, for example, to come to a common understanding in the best interests of the employee and the institution or organization? Um, so my thoughts are, I keep thinking while we're having this conversation, it's really still about relationships. Yes. And it's not about the occupational therapist telling them what to do or the doctor, but it is a conversation between the employee, the OT, the line manager. And that's why it's so important, I think, to start with, a person who becomes mentally ill or, or is booked off work to start the psychoeducation, start from there, and then the conversation has to be taken into the workplace. Right. Um, the line manager has have to be um, informed, and um, I'm all for a assigned return to work kind of plan. Like yes. if this happens, then who's contacting who? What are, what are my needs? You know. And also a discussion of reasonable accommodations with the line managers because I think they have this idea that it's going to cost them money mm. and it's going to be like very difficult to integrate. But the more conversation there is between the parties, I think the easier it becomes. But it doesn't mean it isn't a difficult 
situation. No, it's, it, it is difficult. Yeah. Stoffel, your thoughts? Uh, I, I want to jump in there. Uh, there's a, a, a term that Nika taught me that I wasn't uh, well, I was familiar with the word, but, but didn't know it in that context, and that's desensitization. Mm. Um, the fact that um, occupational therapists actually go into the place of work and desensitizes um, or uh, educates, basically it's yes. educating, I think, um, the line managers and the, the, or the manager specifically and the employer. And I, I think it would be good um, for the listeners, Nika, if you uh, maybe expand a little bit on, on what, what does desensitization mean in this context. Yes, desensitization or sensitization training. For colleagues yeah. and for staff. So, Nika, yes, the floor is yours. Sensitization, I got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I think what, in my experience with um, co workers as well, is that they think the person is getting special treatment. Yes. So, sensitization would include, you know, chatting to them about the Employment Equity Act and what that means and the rights of the person, because not even the person themselves often um, is aware of what their rights are and say, you can ask for this, you're not asking for special treatment. And then just having a discussion about, you know, with this kind of um, illness, um, the person might struggle with concentration. So when they move around, they're not dodging work. So just having that practical conversation um, under the arch of that, would say, of um, the legislation and just sort of starting there. Um, so, yeah. so what it sounds to me is that there are a lot of silos. And I think that, you know, certainly coming from psychiatry where we pride ourselves on a biopsychosocial approach and spirituality is coming into it more and more. And we often speak and always speak about the multidisciplinary team. And I think this concept of a multidisciplinary team also applies in this context, but it's maybe a little bit different where you've got the uh, line manager, you've maybe got human resources and employee wellness, but you've got the occupational therapist who's actually able to inform and to guide in relation to what is the job description, where is this person at functionally, because we've accepted that they have a diagnosable psychiatric condition which is impacting on their functioning, but where are they at at this point, and how do we sit together and structure something that is consensus driven in a way, as opposed to this one says this, this one says that, and they're not really talking to each other. Yeah, and yeah. so we, we, we constitute a different kind of multidisciplinary team in the best interest of the employee, who in this instance, I would say is my patient if I'm the psychiatrist. And how do we get that to happen? Stoffel, I mean, am I, am I being unrealistic here and idealistic or, or, or would that be something which would be possible and certainly might be desirable? Um, I, absolutely. I, I think uh, what surprised me recently, I gave a presentation to a group of uh, case managers of a, uh, a number of different insurance companies, and they asked me to give the same presentation this year again that I gave last year because they said it had too much information. And I, I said, okay, you all saw the presentation. Which slide stood out for you? Yeah. And I had a very emotive slide where I took a picture of um, a person adrift at sea and then I made little circles around the person and I said this is the line manager this is HR this is the doctor this is your psychologist this is your OT and all the role players this is the case manager and that person out there adrift at sea doesn't 
thinks everybody is talking to each other, but yes. nobody's talking to each other. Yes. And it's just interesting. Out of its slide deck of 50, yes. that's the one that one person remembered. Right. So, so the, it's definitely the, the reality that people feel adrift and, uh, and they in, in mentally healthy, not in a good space. And right. they're not the one to try and draw all the strings together. So it's up to us and, and to the employers. So I think it's, we should start with there should be policies in place. Yeah. And then we should, have the same approach, I think, as healthcare professionals or mental healthcare professionals. And then uh, what we encourage people to do in the SASOP guidelines or what uh, what we encourage the uh, process or the approach to be is that the, the OT actually takes the lead once um, the negotiations, are, so, so, so to speak, start with the employer. Just to qualify, SASOP is South African Society of Psychiatrists, and obviously guidelines have been issued in, in, in this regard. So what I'm understanding, Stoffel, is that what I'm talking about is something that you've captured in a slide which really speaks to the lived experience of the employee, let's call them the patient, who's kind of adrift. And there's this expectation that, you know, all these conversations are taking place, but in fact, nobody's talking to anybody. And the, the concern I have is that the point at which people start talking is often in a disciplinary or some kind of yeah. ill health uh, 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 meeting, which could be informal, but it's 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 kind of that's where it gets put on the table, and it often feels to me as if it's quite an adversarial setting, as opposed to, you know, like we'd sit in a ward round and we'd sit around and we'd discuss a patient, and we'd bring the patient in, and then there'd be a you know a discussion, and if necessary, in a clinical situation, in a hospital situation, inpatient situation, the family might come along. And so we have this discussion where we're sort of sharing what we think, sharing our concerns, we're hearing what they think, and we're trying to put it together in the best interest of, of, of the patient. And it just feels to me that those conversations are not taking place, which are, let me put it this way, therapeutically in kind. They, they seem very procedural, and I find that the sort of procedural element to it is quite was experienced, I think, by the employee, the patient, as adversarial. And let's not forget, we're often talking, generally talking about our patients or psychiatric patients or an employee with a mental illness as vulnerable individuals who are really experiencing the uh, institution or the structures as adversarial. I don't know what your experience yeah. is, uh, Stoffel, of that, but that's certainly been certainly my same. experience. Yeah. yeah, so that's been yeah, your experience too. Yeah, and I think it's, 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 it's a difficult one because, you know, when you're called upon to, to, to conduct an assessment, your report just kind of goes into the system and you are, you are not connected to that report anymore. It's, it's, it's up to the existing health committee or the wellness or HR or the line manager or whoever to kind of make sense of that report and then to determine how they, how they move forward. So for me, that's often, I think the, the, the missing issue and, and, and I think it comes back to, what Nika was talking about in terms of relationships, what you're talking about in terms of that slide, which just really captures the, the silos. So, okay, having noted that that slide caught their attention, what was their thinking about, okay, so what do we do about this? So interesting, they, they then asked me, do I ever communicate with a treating psychiatrist? And I said, yes, frequently. Um, but I also communicate with a case manager right. and um, – and I think the, the occupational therapist is very important in, in these few conversations. So I would share my, um, my, my, uh, findings with, with the, uh, the treating psychiatrist, but also ask their opinion yes. uh, because they know the, the person better than, than, than I do. Um, 
and then with the case manager and then with regards to the patient um, or, or the, the, the client that's sitting in front of me, I share with them and I say, be careful. You have the right to the report. Yes. Uh, by all means, ask for the, the report, but be quick, careful with whom you share the report. And I, I actually usually actively discourage them from sharing it with the employer. Right. And, I, and, and that's the conversation I had with the case managers. I said that they should then uh, um, engage with the employer and the occupational therapist who's uh, put this person possibly through a uh, process of vocational rehabilitation. So right. that's how I, I approach the conversation. Nico, any comments on, on that particular point? Yes, I think it, it all comes back once again to um, also educate, educating the patient in terms of their rights to disclosure, yes. um, confidentiality, etc. Um, they are really vulnerable when they get to this point. And, and often um, people don't disclose their mental illness mm. until there's a critical point um, yes. um, at work. And what they don't know is the minute they disclose it, the employer has to reasonably accommodate them or attempt to. Right. Um, but if they haven't disclosed, then there's no reason or no obligation on the part of the employer unless they can see that the person has a, an obvious physical disability or whatever, they're really not um, obliged to reasonably accommodate this person. So. It all comes for me back to stigma around yes. mental health as yes. well, or mental ill health, which Sopa works very hard on breaking down through psychoeducation as well. Yeah. So you see that the issue of confidentiality, I think as important as it is, to some extent potentially muddies the waters because who's saying what to whom? How much can you say? Who should you say it to? When is it appropriate to disclose or not disclose? And I think – that that kind of keeps everybody on tenterhooks in terms of what can and can't be said. And so whilst confidentiality is paramount, the reality is that the sensitivity around confidentiality can inadvertently cloud the situation because nobody's really talking or saying what needs to be said. And I think it's, it's, it's got to be understood that there is no prejudice here. I think at the end of the day, everybody wants what is best for the individual the employee, the patient, obviously for the institution because we can't lose sight of the fact that you know the person comes from an institution and there are also colleagues and fellow workers. But the issue that you mentioned, Nick, I think is very important because I had wanted to talk and I still keep wanting to come back to how we define reasonable accommodation and I will, I won't forget that. But <laughs> just jumping in on, on, on what you said, systems tend to be reactive. That's what I'm seeing. And my question is, are there preemptive considerations? So, for example, we know that when you employ in a pre-employment situation, you can't screen out for conditions, be they physical or mental, because legally it's, 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 it's not a fair labor practice because you don't want to be seen to discriminate. So this whole idea of, of non-discrimination, pre-employment, means that the individual gets into the uh, – employment situation, but nobody knows anything except them in terms of what is going on. So there's no awareness up front. And of course, as a consequence of no awareness, there's no involvement from the outset. And I think one of the concerns I have is precisely this reactive, almost like shock reaction. Oh my word, this person's got a mental illness. What are we going to do now? So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I, and again, I'm, I'm just sort of going off 
in my own thinking about how do we get past all of this because confidentiality is critical, non-discrimination is critical, and yet we have a vulnerable person who technically is qualified for the job. But I think as both of you probably know, putting somebody in a formal situation is not the same as saying, well, they're qualified for the job in terms of how they actually perform. So what are your thoughts on on my thoughts? And I'm just giving you my thoughts there. So we'll start with you, Nick, and then Stoffel. That's a very difficult question, and I don't think I will be able to answer it fully. But um, when people apply for a job and they get appointed, they do at any point in the employment cycle have the right to dis- disclose their um, diagnosis or their disability. Right. And there's a document that they sign to the FISEC, the EA1. Um, but that is, I think it's a personal thing, and, and it depends on the person's understanding of their own mental illness yes. and, you know, the path they've uh, walked as well um, to this point. Um, but, yeah, it's still very in its infancy in South Africa, I think. Stoffel? You, you just kick-started me into action, and, and now you're going to have to manage how much I say. Keep going. Uh, Christopher, um, uh, you, you spoke about reactive and, and, and proactive, yes. and um, the uh, and the disclosure. So uh, I, I actively um, discourage the report, yes. the full report, because there's so much information in, in such a report. But obviously, the, 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 the disclosing the diagnosis is, is, is a different uh, concept. Um, but disclosure, I've noticed, is still fraught with, with sometimes with difficulties for the patient because they worry about um, their chances of, of promotion and, and, and how they will be perceived at, at work. So it is a sticky situation, and I do think there, should, there needs to be a professional like an OT in the process involved. But consider this. So going off on your uh, yes, please. initial thought, I went off on a tangent. Um, Jason Bunches is a psychologist in Stellenbosch. Yes. He did a study um, in 2019 uh, looking at common mental health disorders, generalized anxiety and major depression amongst first-year students at Stellenbosch and UCT universities. Okay, that's across the board. Huh? First years across, across the, the board. board. Yeah, yeah. First year across the board. 38.5% had a common mental health, a diagnosable common mental health disorder already. Right. Then you can compare that to a study by the World Health Organization that compared several countries, and that came out, I think, in South Africa to about 36%, but let's say, and, and then above and below in, in different countries, let's say about 40% of first years already have a common mental health disorder. Fast forward four years, um, life doesn't get uh, easier, you, you get a job. Um, I'm saying to employers, about 50% of your employers, thumbs up, about 50% of your employee uh, employees yes. enter the workforce with a common mental health disorder that's undiagnosed. So the proactive part is immensely important. This That's the psychoeducative part that, that the employers themselves can start doing and um, uh, start desensitizing their, 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 their members, um, creating systems whereby they can seek help early when they become uh, distressed. So, I mean, that's a very high number. I mean, are we talking here about individuals who respond to a questionnaire? Because obviously they've not been clinically diagnosed, but they endorse certain symptoms that might suggest they are maybe disposed to or inclined towards potentially developing psychiatric conditions, uh, you know, in the moment or or in the future. Because, I mean, that's a lot. That's a high number. 
it's, it's, it's shocking. I, and and yes. I, I can go on with this because this is <laughs> what I, I, I love looking at. Yes. Um, a, a study by our colleagues in, in KZN look, looked at um, 15 rural um, hospitals um, right. uh, with doctors. 68% had um, symptoms of, of, of um, burnout. Right. Um, 35% of uh, doctors had, I think 36% of female doctors had major depressive uh, disorder. And that was with a validated uh, um, uh, instrument. instrument. I'm not sure. I can't remember which instruments uh, Jason Bunches, uh used, but I'm sure he's, he's scientifically sound uh, yes. researcher, so, so he must have used the good ones. Yes. Um, so th- this is staggering numbers of yeah. our young people yes. having common mental health disorders or burnout, which could, could, could lead to depression or anxiety. Um, so we need to create awareness in uh, um, in all spheres of life, and, and, and all employers, um, I think, should be starting to take this seriously. Well, I think that one has to be careful. So this is my personal view. One has to be careful with numbers because they can be quite dramatic. And then one is saying, well, if so many people have the problem, you know, it, it's like if everybody's got the problem, then there's no problem because that's just the way it is. So I'm, I'm always a little bit concerned about about that. But I think what it does say is that there's vulnerability, the, you know, that's the key issue is, 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 you know, determining vulnerability and we can put a number to it. But of course, as I say, there's, there's numbers and then there's people and we have to look very carefully. But it does beg the question for me. You're employed at a certain level in an organization. And what is the role of psychometric testing or screening to kind of establish upfront who am I dealing with? What might their needs be? And how do I check in with them if I detect that there's vulnerability, notwithstanding competence, and they are competent to get the job and they're qualified for the job, but they've got certain vulnerabilities, which doesn't mean that we prejudice against them, but it means we monitor them and we check in and we check in to see with their line manager and with them. And this is now maybe a potential employee wellness function who always seem to come in when there's a problem. But where were they before then? That that and, and I'm not blaming them. I'm just kind of asking the question. Where one is almost managing employees in real time as opposed to waiting for a problem and then reacting to it, kind of understanding up front what the vulnerabilities might be and as an organization preemptively making sure that you put in place the right kind of support structures for potentially vulnerable employees and, of course, the issue of confidentiality comes in and privacy because that's often cited. And yet what I'm really talking about is something that is facilitatory and supportive rather than prejudicial and discriminatory. So, Stoffel, your thoughts, and then maybe, Nika, you would jump in as well. Um, yeah, interesting take. I like that. But who does the the uh, psychometric testing usually? It is industrial psychologists. And um, I think – and, and, and nothing against industrial psychologists. So I think they look at uh, at, at other um, uh, w- factors yes. than a clinical psychologist would, for example, look at right. uh, versus an occupational therapist that would be looking at or um, even an occupational uh, physician would look at right. physical stuff. Yes. So, so um, maybe we should take this a lot more seriously and sit around the table a lot more and say, okay, well, when we say psychometric testing, what are all the factors that we can look at, uh, yes. at potentially? Because I think a lot of what I'm putting on the table here is is is, is quite uh, disruptive 
in terms of how the system works. And I'm sort of reimagining a, 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 a better system. And I'm not saying I'm right. But I think it's, it's, it's that kind of discussion around a multidisciplinary team, a preemptive, proactive approach per employee so that we're not always on the back foot and surprised and, oh, my goodness, I didn't know. And, and you, you know, one of the other issues is, and, and, and I've got to come back to the, the sort of legal aspects, what happens if you employ someone knowing, for example, they have bipolar disorder and they could have a manic episode, but you employ them nonetheless and – you then have a situation where the employee has a manic episode and creates havoc on the factory floor, which prejudices the wellness or health of, 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 of fellow employees. To what extent would the employer, by virtue of having knowledge, potentially be liable? Because I'm thinking litigation now, and I'm wondering, I'm almost arguing against myself in terms of you know, upfront disclosure – whether it's a it's it's a wise thing if one thinks of what the consequences might be. So, there's another uh, issue. <laughs> so, but that's, I think yes, the employer Nika. must have put in place reasonable accommodation. Like, you know, I, I sound like a broken record, but if they if the person <coughs> know this, then it's their duty to create a work environment where the person is safe um, right. and where they. Have enough knowledge to sort of anticipate what could trigger. It's not, of course, um, always uh, because of work that the the uh, episode would be triggered. No, no, but sure. they have, then they have to really have a plan in place, um, an emergency plan, an emergency person to contact. Right. Um, yeah. So they have to be able to show that they've covered themselves from that side. I would say. So, I think that's fair enough. So I think that it's always about making sure that you are fully informed, but that you are also fully uh, prepared for something that, 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 that could potentially happen. And obviously you would need to position the person appropriately in terms of what they do and don't do um, with regard to their actual work function. But just coming back to reasonable accommodation, I said I wouldn't forget and I, and I must remember before I do forget. Um, what is, you know, how do you define Reasonable accommodation in a way that an employer can actually just get the gist of it. Because it's a term, but I just want to be a little bit more precise if one can be. Nika, maybe I'll come to you with that. It's basically what adjustment do you need to make in the workplace to make it possible for this person to perform at their best? Right. And um, I often get the question um, from employers, can you just give me a list of reasonable accommodations? But Aha. It does, and I always say it doesn't exist, so there's that frustration because there isn't a one-size-fits-all um, way or accommodation. You really need to look at the person and what their needs are. So do I need a quiet space to work in? Right. Um, do I need frequent breaks because I, my concentration is not great? Um, do I sometimes need to work from home? So it's not the same for everybody. Right. And there's this, I think, misconception that just give me a list and we'll apply it to everyone. Um, and yeah. So, so I think it comes back to the point that I was making earlier about communication, about the multidisciplinary team. And you can use a term, but you then need to flesh it out in terms of what does it mean for the individual in relation to where they are at in terms of their job description, what is absolutely essential. And so then my question becomes, if you provide reasonable accommodation, are you providing a new job description? 
Because at the end of the day, you know, at, 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 at what point does reasonable accommodation become a new job description and then who's going to do that work? Because again, what I've seen is that fellow employees get pretty irate because they're saying we are having to pick up the pieces. We're not getting paid more. That person is holding a position because you cannot dismiss them and you can't move them out unless they are declared disabled, in which case that's a whole different process. So they are sitting in the position. They're not doing the job they're paid to do. We're having to pick up the pieces. We're not getting paid more. And that creates real issues because how long does reasonable accommodation last for and at what point does that then just become a new job description? Stoffel, your thoughts on that? Um, two thoughts. The in the old uh, in old days. Yes, the old days. We're at the age we can we can say that. Um, you, you used to see the term light duty a lot. So light duty used to be yes, a duty. term that yeah that originated in the mines apparently. Yes. Um, so that's when light duty. Uh, if you see that as reasonable accommodation, somebody else has to do part of the the, the person's job. Right. They only do a, do this part. Um, whereas and, and I, I, I wrote an article, I think, in uh, Sama Insider, um, that, and suggesting that doctors should rather use the term reasonable accommodation um, uh, than light duty, because right. reasonable accommodation then considers all the factors that Nika was, was, was referring to, and that it will be different for every person. Right. So I'm going to use my own daughter as an example. And I have a permission. She's, a, she's an adult, and I've used this example a lot yes. um, f- f- with regards to reasonable accommodation. She worked, she, she now uh, lives overseas. She's a, a, an information designer. She worked in an open plan office in Pretoria. Right. And um, she has an anxiety disorder and um, she doesn't like distractions. So she placed herself, she, she tro- chose a, a workstation next to the door across from the bathrooms so, so that when she feels overwhelmed, she can leave. Right. Nobody knew. Then, uh, and she and her team sat there. So they were actually, they didn't work for this company. They worked for another company, but they were the designers. So then they come and physically uh, work in, in, in the company's offices. And then at some point, the the manager suggested, the company's manager suggested that they move to the middle of the um, open plan office right. um, just to be more part of the, yes. the team. yes. And then she disclosed her anxiety disorder and she explained. She said, if you're going to do that to me and I'm going to sit there in the middle, um, I'm going to be a lot more distracted. I'm going to be a lot more anxious. I'm going to be less productive. Um, can I please stay here at the, the side? And she, she, she left it. So that is reasonable accommodation. It's, right. uh, um, it's not it's something that, that takes away it, it, anything. It doesn't cost the company anything. It, it didn't change anything in terms of, 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 of uh, the productivity, but that is in itself already a form of reasonable accommodation. Yes, but I think that's a really nice reasonable accommodation because you're getting full functionality from the employee, whereas a lot of the individuals we're talking about, you're not getting full functionality despite the reasonable accommodation, which is simply almost to keep them in the workforce, which I think is very important because the one thing I see is that patients are often booked off for three months or six months. And my question is always, okay, to do what? You know, because yeah. I, 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 th- I think unless there's a proper plan, I think that also irritates the employer because they don't know what the hell that means or what is going on. And I mean, we know that, you know, extended leave can have a negative consequence in terms of what they call zest for work. It kind of diminishes that. 
And it seems to me that if you're going to book somebody off for an extended period of time, you really need a, a, a good quality supervision and involvement to 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 bring the person back to the workplace under favorable conditions. So, so what are your thoughts on these extended? Because that's often, you know, when one is requested to do an independent assessment, it comes as a consequence of this extended sick leave or incapacity uh, application for for you know extended leave. Stoffel. There's a term they use in emergency medicine, uh, in medicine called the, the golden hour right. um, to save a patient's life. I, I, I think it's a psychiatry which we should use the term a golden month, that first month. And so, so if, if you're going to book a person off as a healthcare provider, mental healthcare provider for a month, there should be a plan. There should be a specific plan already in place. So the, the attitude from the outset should hopefully be, um, let's try and get you back at work. And I always say, not at all costs, not, not, not at the cost that it's going to harm you. Yes. You, you do get toxic work environments. Um, but let's make sure that there's a specific, there, there are things that's happening every week in terms of a plan to get you back to work. And once you're back to work, that there's a, a plan going forward to get you back to full functionality as well. Yeah, and I think that that's very important, but I'm not sure that that really happens, to be honest with you, because it's not the sense that I have that there is that kind of active engagement. And again, it comes back to this issue of communication and the multidisciplinary team, as I kind of described it earlier. Nika, your thoughts on, on, on what Stoffel has said? No, I totally agree. Um, and I can't remember the name of the study, but the fact is the longer you booked off work, the less likely, likely you are to return to work. Yes. Um, and I do think in that golden month, the occupational therapist, there should be a red flag that goes up at HR when someone is booked off for a yeah. month that says, okay, these things need to be put in place um, to get the person back to work. And then again, there's got to be a return to work, a reintegration plan. Because if I break my leg and I've got uh, external fixation and all that, you're just not going to just put me back in work all of a sudden. Yes. There's going to be a plan to get me back and fully functional at work. And that brings me back to the question about reasonable accommodation. It's not a, it's not written in stone and it should be revisited every three months to um, make sure that that's also adjusted and it, and it should be practical. It shouldn't be the Exactly. So what we're talking about is a, is a, is a real time ongoing review of functionality. What constitutes reasonable accommodation at this point for this person? Ideally working them back to full functionality. Just a personal observation. The one thing that I've seen where I've been requested to do these independent assessments is that very often there was no prior psychiatric history when the person joined the company. And due to HR issues, a toxic environment has ensued, and we now have mental health consequences. And the person is now kind of seen as having a mental illness. And when you kind of rewind and go back and go back and go back, where was human resources to resolve, for example, conflict between an employee and a line manager? And so I've often… In actually many of the cases, and I think do I just receive a, a biased sample by chance? I don't know. But I often see that this, this, this environment that has kind of emerged, this toxic environment based on poor interpersonal relationships and poor leadership actually impacts so profoundly on the individual that they now start to manifest with symptoms 
which are diagnosable or they rise to the level of pathology and now they've got a mental illness. Whereas in actual fact, the problem is really the environment and, and, and interpersonal relationships. I don't know what your experience is, Stoffel, but that's certainly – and those individuals want to go back to work. They don't want to not work, but they want changed circumstances, which goes – I suppose one could put it in the realms of reasonable accommodation, but what they really need is a very honest, frank discussion to review what happened and how to work around it because often these are people who've been in the organization for a while. They've got skills. Yep. They do contribute, but they're going to be lost to the system. So your thoughts, Stoffel, as we come to the end. Um. And, and this has been my experience as well. And, and I, I would venture to say that it's more than 50% of the cases that I see yeah. is related to work yeah. um, com- as compared to um, life factors outside of the person, outside of work happening to the, uh, uh, the individual. So um, a lot has to happen in that space in South Africa in terms of creating psychological safe spaces. And unfortunately, also another just observation is that it's frequently your quite conscientious people yeah. who's been with a company for years and years and years. And then suddenly there's a change in a manager yes, and, and things go pear shaped yeah. um, And, and they usually bit perfectionistic. And when I, when I pick that up, I say um, certain professions like the medical profession calls for us to be perfectionists um, or your or, or auditors. It calls for that char- characteristic. And it's for, unfortunately many, many times those people, that start to struggle at work in a, in a, in a, a toxic work environment or, or struggles with a, a, a different manager who, who suddenly changes the way that they manage them. I think what concerns me sometimes is that obviously when you do an independent assessment, you often get a lot of background information, which the treating psychiatrist doesn't get. So the treating psychiatrist is presented with a set of symptoms, which they diagnose and treat accordingly. But actually once you pull back the curtain and you get all the background information, you say, whoa, 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 hang on a sec. There's an interpersonal relationship here between, you know, relationship issue between the person being referred and a colleague or a line manager. And very often that is kind of missed in the clinical situation. So, so we come along and then we see that and we sort of unravel yeah. it like, yeah. uh, like detectives. So listen, we've come to the end of our time. There were still things that I wanted to talk about in terms of the constitution and the employment equity act and all kinds of things, but we're not going to get there, but I want to thank you for your time. And sharing your knowledge and experience of how best to approach what I think is a very difficult situation, the impaired employee with a psychiatric illness. So whatever the legal framework, policies or guidelines, what is key is communication, I think. Honest, reasonable and timeless within the context of what is both legislated and recommended, obviously balancing needs and concerns of all parties, but ultimately not forgetting our common humanity. So in closing, a few words from Stephen Hawking. He's the English theoretical physicist, cosmologist, and author who said, work gives you meaning and purpose, and life is empty without it. This has been Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. Remember, there is no health without mental health, and until next time, take care. Today we're talking to Jackie Mayman as part of our focus on independent community pharmacies. Jackie is a pharmacist with over 35 years working experience in the health sector, specifically in the pharmaceutical industry. She is also a founding director of the Independent Community Pharmacy Association and is currently their CEO. Jackie, hi and welcome to Beyond Madness. Today we're going to be talking about the use of uh, medical aid benefits 
So a major concern for those with medical aid cover is how to maximize benefits and ensure they manage them optimally. Is there a role for the pharmacist in the uh, in this process? Hi there, and it's an absolute pleasure to be on Beyond Madness. Thank you for having me. Well, the simple answer is absolutely yes. Right. There is a role for pharmacists in helping individuals with medical aid to maximize their benefits and manage them optimally. Right. So pharmacists are trained healthcare professionals who provide guidance and advice on various aspects related to medical schemes or medical aids. Um, as you are probably aware, if you're on a medical aid, they have very complex benefit options. It can be confusing, but irrespective of the option that you're on, all medical schemes are governed by the Medical Schemes Act. Right. And this stipulates that certain conditions must be covered in full. So I think that's the first thing you need to understand. Right. These, these are called prescribed minimum benefits, right. PMBs. PMBs. And yeah, and it includes 26 chronic conditions plus, and this is what a lot of people don't realize, a set of 271 listed medical conditions which are diagnosis-specific and include a range of ailments that can be divided broadly into 15 categories. Uh-huh. This goes from anything like the brain and nervous system, eyes, ear, nose, throat, uh, respiratory, and included in there is pregnancy, so confinement and delivery is all covered. It's it's uh, has to be covered by medical aids. Mental illness is another one. And the conditions range from anything like an acute otitis media, which is an ear infection, right. to, as I say, pregnancy and cancer. Also, your scheme um, is uh basically mandated to cover emergencies as well. So anything that is life-threatening. Okay. So I think that's the first thing, yeah, is to understand that you may be on, uh, you may be presented with, I don't know, some, some of these medical schemes can have 15, 16 different options. Right. But whether you are on the most basic hospital option or you're on a comprehensive cover, those basics have to be covered. And I All think right. what's, what's, what's really important is that individuals who are, members understand their benefits. And I think sometimes it can be quite overwhelming uh, when you get into the fine print. And I think that's where a community pharmacist who actually, you know, has an understanding of what the uh, benefits are that the patient should be able to 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 receive uh, is in a position to guide and assist in terms of of medication they might be eligible to receive that is covered by their scheme in terms of the prescribed minimum benefits and all of the other conditions. Jackie, I think that's really important, and I think that uh, it's important for people to understand that their pharmacist is available to assist under the circumstances. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we will speak again. Thank you. Lovely. Thank you.